And it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. And I'll ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures if you haven't already. And our title this morning is The Obedience of Christ as we continue our series in Matthew, The Gospel of Fulfillment. And we'll be in chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Now, it's difficult to overemphasize the importance of this week's passage. Why hyperbole is a common ditch to fall into, our passage this morning is not just critical in having a right theology and understanding of God. But if you get this, if you get this passage, you begin to understand the message of Christianity at its core. The active obedience of Jesus, as he lived and walked on this earth as the God-man nearly 2,000 years ago, has significant implication on your life today. Now, what I want us to gather and take away from our text today is that the identity, person, and work of Jesus, even his obedience, means one thing. Jesus is for you. That's what it means. Now, if you were convinced the scriptures taught this truth, how might that affect the life you live? How would that frame your relationships, your circumstances, and even your desires? If you didn't simply make mental assent to it, but you believed it in the core of your being that Jesus was for you, how would that affect your relationship with God? Both the faithful follower of Christ and the agnostic have a common question. If there is a God, if he made this world and by extension me, if he really did move and work in a way to bring rescue to my heart and soul, if he calls me to turn from self and sin and to him, if I'm to believe and act on those things, will it be to my benefit? Is it worth it? Is he for me? He is. God has a word for us as he brings clarity on this question. And by way of encouragement, God welcomes our questions. He welcomes our fear and doubt. So wherever you find yourself today, wherever you are in this moment, Consider that God would bring us to Matthew 3 to warm your heart as we consider and seek to follow after him. So read with me, please, starting in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is God's Word. 
And there are a number of ways, Lakewood, that Jesus is for us. However, from these verses, I'd like to point out three. The first we see is that Jesus is for your service. Now, I get this directly from verses 13 and 14 in our text. Look again. Up to this point, Jesus has described, or rather Matthew has described Jesus as coming from a great lineage. He's the promised king and he's the promised son. He's worshipped at his birth, as Dan preached, joyfully worshipped. His coming was prepared for by faithful followers like John the Baptizer. And as we will see, he's the better and the true son who came out of Egypt, as Matthew 2.15 says, to perfectly obey, obey where others had failed. And as we heard last week, John the Baptizer said that Jesus would be coming and that this king would cause a fork in the road. People would encounter Jesus and be forced to a decision. So verse 13 shouldn't surprise us. Here comes Jesus, just as John had predicted. Now, to remind us, John's ministry was to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. Essentially, it was, hey, get your heart right. The king is coming. So it's not a surprise that we see Jesus would come. But it is a surprise at what Jesus does do, does do when he arrives. Jesus comes to be baptized by John, which theologically we should have some problems with at the face of it. And it seems that John certainly did. This was a baptism that was different from the Christian baptism as we understand it today. This, John's baptism, it represented and it symbolized confession of sin, needing to get right with God. So in verse 14, John is a little squeamish about it. Jesus you don't need to be baptized by me to confess sin. You're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm the sinful one. I should be baptized by you. Well, there's two things I want to point out here that have a very real impact, not just on John, but on us. First, and we're going to hit on this more in our next point, while Jesus did not sin or need to confess sin in baptism, He's doing the special work of fulfillment. He has come out of Egypt, just as Israel did, so many hundreds of years before, and Jesus is identifying with the sin of his people. As the better son, he is representing his people and confessing sin in their place. And we'll hit on it more directly in a moment, but I want us to sit and hang on John's objection. Put yourself in John's shoes this morning. If Jesus approached you today, he came in this room, he walked right up to you, and he asked you to baptize him. Or he said, will you come with me to the, to the back prayer corner? Can I confess sin and will you pray with me? What would be your response? Well, as a Christian, that would seem completely insane. Jesus, that's just bad theology, we might argue. Because the scriptures principally teach that Jesus is the God-man who created this world, came and lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose from the grave, quite literally, to bring 
you to a new life and a new heart in him. Me serve him? No. No. Now, some of the theological confusion we'll look at, but ask yourself this. What is Jesus inviting John into? What is Jesus asking of John? Jesus is for John's service, and Jesus is for your service as well. Here's how one writer explains this interesting dynamic. In other words, although it may seem inappropriate for you to do this, John, you may feel unqualified and out of place, but permit it now. Permit it because this is part of something bigger than your ministry and what you might think your ministry and service means. This is bigger than the question of your qualifications and adequacy for the task. It's part of the work of God. And in this moment, you, John, are being invited to participate in that work. So do your work and let God show you how it is part of the greater work that he is doing. John the baptizer is being invited into the working of human history. He's being invited to a service that is bigger, grander, and more significant than himself. Is it not the same with you and I? Does being a faithful follower of Christ not include your service? It does. Even as it's expressed in our core values here at this church, isn't being shaped by biblical living, committed to relational community, and compelled toward intentional outreach? Is it not a call to enter into the plan and the work of Jesus? Yes. Are you qualified to do it? Well, Jesus seems to think that you are. You see, he calls men, women, and children to hear the call and the ringing reality of the gospel of Christ. He is for your service. So he is for your building of relationships. He is for your inviting people into your home. He is for your caring for the little ones and Lakewood kids. He is for your serving in ways that seem and feel beyond your capacity. He's for your service regardless of gifts and skills. Now, if you're an older saint, if you're single, if you're a busy parent, if you're a child, kids, hear me, if you have breath in your lungs, and if you can hear me right now, hear this. Jesus is for your service. Ask God to give you creative ways to serve the body of Christ. And if you have fallen into the sin of being simply a hearer of God's word and not a doer. That's okay. Repent. Turn from that. And like John, obey the call to serve, even if it seems bigger than yourself. Well, I want us to see that Jesus, he's not just for our service, but second, Jesus is for your righteousness. Now, I'm really giddy about this point. I'm, this is why I'm here right now. I'm really excited about this point. This is my excited face. Jesus is for your righteousness. I get this directly from verse 15, so let's read it again. But Jesus answered him, 
Let it be so now, being baptized, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So it's this phrase, to fulfill all righteousness, where we clearly get our point. We're not surprised, or we shouldn't be, to find this kind of fulfillment language again. Our writer, Matthew, again and again and again points to fulfillment. And the question, it has to be asked this morning, how does Jesus being baptized fulfill all righteousness? And how does it apply to me? Well, this hits squarely on Matthew's intent for the entire gospel account and his aim in documenting this baptism of Jesus. Verse 15 needs to be a verse that you know very intimately as a Christian. Grandmas, you need to start putting this on pillows. This is a significant verse. This verse is an explanation of what we call the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's frame it in the way that Matthew has as he explains the identity and the life of Jesus. And we've mentioned this already, and we looked at at it more closely a couple weeks ago. But in some kind of fulfillment, Matthew says Jesus is presented as the son who was called out of Egypt. And we continue to see the early stages of an argument that Matthew makes throughout the gospel narrative. Excuse me. Jesus is the truer and better son. See, in the Old Testament, God's children, the nation of Israel, they had proved unfaithful. They came out of Egypt and they disobeyed God's commands. And they incurred judgment for ignoring their covenant with him. Jesus, on the other hand, as we will keep seeing, he comes out of Egypt and obeys his father perfectly, conquering temptation and fulfilling the law of God. So when we come to our passage here in this really important verse in verse 15, we see Jesus being baptized and all righteousness somehow is being fulfilled. Here's how one commentator helps explain it. To fulfill all righteousness, John must baptize Jesus. Jesus knows that John's baptism is the Father's will. So by receiving baptism, Jesus identifies with his people in their sin. The nation needs to repent, and Jesus is part of that nation. So Jesus comes to repent. He does not separate himself from them. Jesus binds himself to the destiny of his people. So in retracing Israel's steps, he's righteous where they and we are not. So when Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, they still sinned. As they spent years in the wilderness being tempted, they sinned. But Jesus goes through the waters, and he obeys and fulfills all righteousness. Spoiler alert. We're going to consider a passage next week where Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted and he obeys and fulfills all righteousness. You see, the baptism of Jesus is the visible manifestation of the gospel. It's a great manifestation of a great gospel verse. I'll put it on the screen. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Taking on the sin of his people, just as he was in baptism. 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, in this baptism, Jesus identifies with the sin of his people, and he actively obeys where they and we failed, so that righteousness would be fulfilled, so that he would be righteous on our behalf. Simply put, the active obedience of Christ is his perfect life, and that is the basis for God declaring us righteous. God imputes or transfers or legally declares the righteousness of Jesus unto us, making us righteous in him. The, the identity and the work of Jesus, the testimony of the scriptures, and even your lived-out experience say this. We are not righteous. Not in ourselves. Our good works don't earn us favor with God. Our good works can't earn forgiveness or heaven. Our good works can't even change our hearts or the hearts of our children or our parents or our co-workers, whoever you're worried about. Good works won't change that heart. The good work was done by Jesus. His act of obedience, his perfect, sinless following of the Father is all the credit you need to be right with God. Jesus is enough. Jesus is for your righteousness. Matthew 3.15 is the theology behind John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the one who would be righteous on your behalf. And whoever believes in him and his righteousness will not perish but have everlasting life. So how does this affect me on a Monday? Some of those questions that we asked earlier start to have some answers. How is Jesus for my righteousness, him being my righteousness? Well, how does that affect my relationships and frame them? You see, if Jesus is for my righteousness, I don't have to put on a facade with the people around me or when I show up on Sunday morning. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. The kid's fine. The family, fine. We're all fine. I don't have to do that if Jesus is my righteousness. I don't have to pretend to be someone I'm not. We can confess weakness, inconsistency, doubt, and frustration. And this even means that when I'm misunderstood or maligned or perceived incorrectly, I know two things are true. I know I'm likely far worse than they think. And I know I'm righteous in God's eyes because Jesus is my righteousness. This should create a humble confidence in us. I know I'm not righteous in myself. I know that sin marks my life. Yet I know I can live without fear of God's judgment because I'm in Christ. And this does affect my relationship with God as well. Where are you at today with God? If it's anything like me, it's a little bit of a roller coaster. So how does Jesus being my righteousness frame how I think about how I'm doing with God? My performance is not the litmus test for right standing with God. 
As a faithful follower of Christ, God will produce good works and the fruit of the Spirit in me. But the prerequisite, the required and established reality is first that Jesus is for my righteousness. That should take a lot of pressure off us as Christians. We follow and obey God not to earn his favor, but we do so out of a deep love and affection for him. Which leads us to our final point. Jesus is for, yes, our righteousness, but Jesus is for our affection. This is seen clearly in our last two verses, 16 and 17. Just as Jesus rose from the waters, we have one of these instances in the New Testament where we see the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, plainly and obviously in action and harmony together. But it's verse 17 I especially want us to cherish this morning. The Father's response. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We've alluded to this already, but these words must drive our Christian understanding of our relationship with God through Christ and his gospel. Jesus is the beloved son who came out of Egypt, fulfilled all righteousness. The father has nothing but deep love and affection for his perfect sinless son. There is no separation, no anger, no judgment, no frustration, only love and joy and affection and here is the most amazing yet possibly the most difficult christian doctrine to believe at least it is for me romans 8 1 there is therefore no condemnation separation anger judgment or frustration for me in christ jesus as a faithful follower of Christ, when God sees you, he doesn't look at your righteousness. He looks at his son. Jesus' baptism, the father's declaration of affection for his beloved, is applied to you, Christian. Yes, your imperfect, flawed, even sinful following of God, he is pleased with you. As you cling to Christ. He is pleased with you as he, by his Spirit, gradually changes you more and more into the image of Jesus. Now, I meet with many Christians and non-Christians alike. And a common struggle and fear we have as humans is that we are not accepted or loved. And if you are following Jesus, yes, pursue holiness and Christ-likeness. But do not do so out of the posture and conviction that you have to earn your way. Do it out of the posture of conviction that you're loved. You're accepted. The Father has deep affection for you in Jesus. If you are here and you do not know and follow Christ, consider afresh that this is what your heart ultimately longs for. Fundamentally, you desire to be known, loved, and cherished. My friends, Jesus is for you. He's for you. Look to him. Follow him. Trust in his active obedience on your behalf. And the affection of the Father, it does influence our week. So like the prodigal son, 
we can turn from our waywardness and run to a forgiving Father because He loves you. Like the desperate psalmist, you can cry out your honest thoughts and struggles. He loves you. Like Moses, when your plans seem to crumble at first, trust in his character and promises. He loves you. Like Paul, when you find yourself shipwrecked, weary, and in circumstances that feel as though they will drown you, cling to his good and sovereign plan. He loves you. He's got this. Well, I, I want to share a prayer that I read this week. An old Puritan prayer. I'd recommend this book. It's called Piercing Heaven, The Prayers of the Puritans. So as we close here, hear this good prayer and consider how Jesus is for you. We do not approach you in prayer because of our own righteousness, O God. Our sins prevent us from standing before you, but we make mention of Christ's righteousness, his alone. He is our righteousness. We know that spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to you only through Christ Jesus, and we cannot hope to receive anything unless we ask you on his behalf. Therefore, make us accepted in the Beloved, the one who adds much incense to the prayers of the saints and offers them up upon the golden altar before the throne. We come in the name of Jesus, the great high priest, who has passed into the heavens, the Son of God. He was touched with the feeling of our sins and is therefore able to save to the uttermost all those that come to God by him. He lives forever, making intercession. <laughs> so, see our shield, O God, and look on the face of your anointed one. With a voice from heaven, you declared yourself well pleased in him. Lord, in him, be well pleased with us. Amen.